how much the Lord loves us is tremendously. Two things about God's love. His love is unconditional. His love is everlasting. His love is not based upon your conduct, your behavior, or how you live. It is unconditional. It's also everlasting. He always and will love us. How many are grateful for that? Turn your Bibles again, if you would please, to the book of 1 Corinthians and chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, please. As you're turning there, if you notice the flowers up here, there's not up here to make the pastor look good. <laughs> there are from the memorial service yesterday for Georgia Ecton. We had two memorial services yesterday, one at 11 o'clock for Georgia Ecton and also 5 p.m. for Lucy Smith. Lucy Smith was the mother of Donnie Smith. And both services were wonderful. Thank you for all those who came to support the family. And the one for Georgia Ecton was a tremendous service, very beautiful service, just a service of folks on a celebration of her life. And just a great time it was for God's people. But also the evening service for Lucy Smith, <clears throat> we had five people in the cave they trusted Christ as Savior. So we're just so grateful for that also. So it was a wonderful day yesterday, and thank you for those who came to support the family. Thank you for those who prayed. All right, our theme for the year, many of you know already, the choir sang at the beginning, the opening. Our theme for the year is threefold, is being rooted deeply, standing firmly, and living steadfastly. The first part of this year, by the way, it's hard to believe it's September, isn't it? Where has the year gone? <laughs> the first part of the year, we did a series of messages on the importance of being rooted and grounded in God's Word. Then I did a series of messages on standing firmly in the truth of God's Word. And today I'd like to begin talking about living steadfastly, how important it is for God's people to be steadfast. And probably the most important, the most well-known verse in all of the Bible in steadfast living is 1 Corinthians 15, 58. We quoted that together. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is what we call the resurrection chapter. Interesting, many chapters in the New Testament have a name to it. 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter. 1 Corinthians 13 is what? The love chapter. And Hebrews 11 is called the faith hall of fame chapter. So there's many chapters have names given to them. But his one is called the resurrection chapter. This chapter is the most extensive treatment of the uh, resurrection of Jesus Christ. What happened, there were many false teachers that come behind the Apostle Paul and started teaching things that were false. And many of the Corinthian believers that Paul led to Christ begin now to doubt the resurrection, to question the resurrection. And so Paul designated a whole chapter of this book he wrote to them on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, he began talking about the resurrection as the core message to the gospel itself. Back up, please, to chapter 15 and verse 1, please. Notice here, he refers to the gospel, and the third component of that wonderful message is the resurrection of Christ. In chapter 15, verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the what? The gospel. Then he goes on and give it, gives the gospel to us, verse 3. For I delivered unto you first of all, which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he what? Rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So he begins with this chapter 
talking about the wonderful message we all believed and were saved by includes the resurrection. Then he talks about there were over 500 people that saw him after he rose from the dead. Look with me, would please, down in verse 6. Talking about in verse 5, how Peter saw him. Then after that, he was seen above 500 brethren at once. Talking about the witnesses that saw his resurrection from the dead for his body. He rose again in and he is alive today. Then after that, he talks about that if you deny the resurrection, you're denying Christ's resurrection. He says there in verse 12, Now if Christ being preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if, Christ, but if there be no resurrection from the dead, then Christ is not risen. So basically, he said, if you deny the resurrection, you deny that Christ rose from the dead. And how important that is. Then he went on to say in verses 14 through 19, that six things will be true if Christ be not risen. Do not read that. That's not in the message today. But the whole chapter focuses on that. Then in verse 20 and 22, he affirms that Christ indeed rose from the dead and that his resurrection is a guarantee of our resurrection. Now, I want you to learn, look in verse 50. In verse 50, he wraps up this chapter and he talks about you cannot go to heaven unless we're changed. We cannot go to heaven unless we are changed. And it talks about the change in verse 50. Look what he says here. Now this I say, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, this body you're living in won't go to heaven. There must be a change. And of course, that change happens when Christ returns and, the, and we're resurrected. It says, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. This body is a corruptible body. One day it's going to die. But one day I'm going to get a new body that will live forever. So there must be a change in us before we can go to heaven. And I want to share with you, he concludes this chapter with three great truths. First of all, he talks about a wonderful new truth, a glorious victory, and a tremendous motivation. So let's begin in verse 51. We're going to call a wonderful truth a wonderful new truth. Look how he begins in verse 51. He says, Behold, I show you a what? Mystery. What does that mean? What is a mystery? A mystery is a truth revealed for the first time. Basically, a term refers to a hidden, a truth hidden in the Old Testament and given to us revealed in the New Testament. Here he's talking about, we're going to see more clearly later on, the rapture of the church. When the Lord comes back for his saints. It's revealed for the first time here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 by the Apostle Paul. It's explained later in detail, we're going to look at in a moment, in 1 Thessalonians. If you would hold your finger right here in Corinthians, go now to Ephesians. Here it explains what a mystery is. Ephesians chapter 3, please. Page 1646, if you use a church Bible. This mystery of the rapture is a new truth revealed by the Apostle Paul, not mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament or even in the Gospels. It's given for the first time. He said, Behold, I show you a truth revealed for the first time. In Ephesians 3, look in verse 4. He explains what a mystery is. Ephesians 3, verse 4. He said, Whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the what? 
the mystery of Christ, verse 5, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by his Spirit. So this truth of the rapture is nowhere in the Old Testament or the Gospels. It is mentioned for the first time right here in the book of Corinthians by the Apostle Paul. Now I say that. Let me show you something. This is not in your notes. Turn with me to Matthew 24. Keep your finger in 1 Corinthians, please. Matthew 24. When you find that, look up here. Matthew 24. Here's a verse that's commonly interpreted as the rapture of the church. But if that was the rapture, then what Paul shared with us was something, not anything new. In the back in the 70s and the 80s, there were three very popular Christian films. It was called A Thief in the Night, A Distant Thunder, and The Image of the Beast. How many remember that? We showed all three in the church. And The Thief in the Night, they quoted here in the book of Matthew, a verse, and they said it referred to the rapture of the church. And look at it with me, please. In verse 36, Matthew 24, 36, page 1383, if you're using a church Bible. Verse 36. But of the day and the hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Verse 37. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah entered the ark. Verse 39. And knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Then, it says, shall two be in the field? One shall be taken, the other left. Two women shall be grinding the mill, the one shall be taken, and the other left. Watch therefore, for you know not the hour your Lord doth come. So people said that refers to the rapture. Two will be in the field, one shall be taken, one left. My friend, that's not the rapture of the church. It's the revelation. Now look where please. The second coming of Christ has two aspects. The rapture, the Lord coming for his saints. The revelation, the Lord comes with his saints. Those two events are divided by a seven-year period called the tribulation. The next event on God's calendar is called the rapture of the church. When he comes back for us to take us to heaven. And then the one after that. This one is not the rapture, it's the revelation. Now the rapture, look up here please. When the Lord comes, who's taken and who's left? At the rapture, the believers taken to heaven and the unbelievers left behind. In this, who's taken and is left behind? It says there in verse 38, as the days of Noah were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving marriage until the Noah, uh, the day that Noah entered the ark, they knew not the flood came till it took them all away. So shall also the coming son of men. So when the flood came, who'd the flood take away? the unbelievers, and Noah was left behind. This is talking about the revelation. When Christ returns, he'll take all the unbelievers away, only the believers left behind. However, the rapture is when he comes and takes the believers away, and unbelievers left behind. So this is not talking about the rapture. The rapture was not real, revealed to us until 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So that's a misinterpretation of that. I thought I'd give you a little freebie there. But by the way, go back to 1 Corinthians if you're still there. 1 Corinthians 15. 
Here he reveals a wonderful new truth called the rapture of the church. Now, what makes this truth wonderful? Why is this a truth we can rejoice in? First of all, the wonderful truth is this. Some believers will never die. There will be a group of Christians that will never experience physical death. It says there in verse 51, Behold, I show you a mystery. It goes on to say, We shall not all what? Sleep. That is not talk about the person on the back row snoozing as the pastor preaches. Not talking about what you do at nighttime when you're in bed. It's not talking about that. The worst thing, we shall not all die. There will be a generation of believers that will never experience physical death. Because when Christ comes, we'll just be snatched away and never experience death. How many looking forward to that? I believe this would be in our day. But if not, that's the you've heard the term. I'm not looking for the undertaker. I'm looking for the what? Upper taker. Now, when Christ comes back, we shall not all sleep. But the next one, so the great truth is, some believers never die. Boy, you're going to save a lot of money. My friend, funerals are getting expensive. And so, I don't know about you, I hope I don't have to pay. My wife doesn't have to pay for a funeral. I'm just going to go to heaven. Now, we have an Old Testament example that is called Enoch. Remember Enoch? And Genesis said he walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. That's an example of the Old Testament, of the rapture. But notice here, the first new truth, some believers will never die. The next one is, every believer shall be changed. He said, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. One time I went to a church, I saw that phrase on the door of the nursery. <laughs> we shall not all sleep, we shall all be changed. <laughs> but, <laughs> but anyway... This change we need to go to heaven will happen at the rapture of the church. And so notice here this change. It says there in verse 52, this change will be instantaneously. It happened just like that. It says, in a moment in the twinkling of a what? Listen, please. It didn't say the blinking of an eye. You can see a person blink his eye. The twinkling of eyes when light flashes off your eyes, the speed of light. So if, we were, if you were living during the rapture, you won't see people gradually going up. All of a sudden, they're here and they're not. <laughs> they're gone. It's a twinkling of an eye. It's instantaneously. But also, this change involves the resurrection of the dead. This change involves the resurrection of the dead. Verse 52 again. In a moment, in twinkling of an eye, the dead shall be raised, what? Incorruptible. Now, how many of you have loved ones in heaven? This refers to the bodies in the grave. I'm going to show you in a moment. When a person dies, though the body's laid in the grave, they go to heaven. The moment you breathe your last breath as a Christian, you're ushered in the presence of God. And But what God resurrects is your body. So at the rapture of the church, when Christ returns, all the bodies of our unsaved, I'm assuming our saved that are in heaven, are resurrected. Uh, Brother Bill, that's when you'll see your wife again. <laughs> that her body will be resurrected. The resurrection of the dead. It goes on to say in verse 52, the dead shall be raised incorruptible. And it goes on to say there'll be a change. This change includes the removal of the living. This change includes a removal of the living. And it says we shall be changed. So look up here, please. So don't get confused. If the rapture happened today, which I hope it does, I'd love to be able to say amen and close our service and go to heaven, wouldn't you? All of a sudden, if he returns now, 
all, every believer that's living will be snatched up to heaven. But before you're called up to heaven, your loved ones in the grave will be first resurrected. Now, they are in heaven with the Lord. When he comes back, he'll bring them back with him. The body in the grave will be resurrected and reunited with their spirit. And as they go up, we'll be caught up together with them in the clouds. I'm going to show you that in just a moment. So this change involves a resurrection of the dead. It includes removal of the living. Both changes will happen together. It says in verse 53, For this corruptible means the body that are in the grave must put on incorruption, and this mortal, those that are living, must put on immortality. And so basically, this wonderful truth is some believers will never die. Every believer will be changed. Lastly on this point, this truth is given to comfort us. This truth is given to comfort us. Go with me now. Keep referring to Corinthians to 1 Thessalonians, please. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Here is a detailed description of the rapture of the church. 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Don't let me lose you, please. I'm going somewhere with all this. 1 Thessalonians, page 16.64. For those using a church Bible. One person said, Pastor, I have my own Bible. I look up the page number you gave, and I couldn't find it. <laughs> this is for the church Bible. Bible have a different page number, so if you don't have a church Bible, then hopefully I take you. Let me give you a hint. In the front of your Bible is the table of contents. <laughs> exactly what page is on. First Thessalonians chapter four, verse thirteen, please. Here Paul speaking to Christians. He said, But I would not have you to be ignorant brethren, Christians, concerning them which are what? Talking about those that have died in Christ. Which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no what? Let's come here, please. The Lord acknowledges sorrow we have when we lose a loved one. When you lose a loved one in death, there is sorrow. Listen, please. It is sorrow with hope. The word hope means the joyful anticipation that you'll see them again. Yesterday in the evening memorial service, I gave the gospel and told them how they can be certain of seeing Lucy Smith again one day if they trust Christ as Savior. And I said, can I say this reverently and calmly? If you've never trusted Christ as Savior, you have no hope of seeing Lucy again because Jesus is the blessed hope. And if you have loved ones in heaven today, if you're not saved, you have no hope of seeing them again. But if you are saved, yes, we sorrow at their loss, but it's sorrow with what? It said that you sorrow not as others which have no hope. So yes, there's sorrow, but it's sorrow mingled with hope of seeing them again one day. But notice he goes on to say, there in verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, by the way, that's the gospel. The key was required of us to be involved at the rapture is if I trust Christ as Savior. If I believe the gospel that he died for me, was buried and rose again. So what he says here, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, read on, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God what? Notice carefully, will God what? Bring with him. Look here, please. So may I use Georgia Ecton? That's so fresh on our minds. 
when she breathed her last breath, my friend, she went to heaven. Absent from the body is what? Present with the Lord. And when the Lord comes back, the Lord brings her back with him. Now, there's a false teaching today is called soul sleep. Many churches teach this. They believe that when a person, when a Christian dies, their soul remains in the grave with the body until Christ returns, called sleeping there in the grave. My friend, if your soul is with your body in the casket in the grave, somebody buried you alive. Because James says, as the body without the spirit is dead. So the moment you breathe your last breath, your spirit leaves your body. If you're saved, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And so you're in heaven. Your spirit's not in your body's in the grave. So when Christ comes back, he'll bring you back with him. That's what it says there, the latter part of verse, verse 14. Read on to verse 15. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not prevent. The word prevent means precede them that are asleep. What is saying here? The rapture come now. If Christ comes back, this first aspect, the coming, come out the coming for his saints. When he comes back for us, the dead in Christ shall rise first, and right after that, those that are living shall be called up together with them. And it goes on to say that. We shall not precede them which are asleep. Verse 16. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise, what? My friend, that, may I use again, to use the word uh, we talk about, George Acton, her body be resurrected. She's in heaven, brought back and united with her body. The dead in Christ shall rise first, referring to their physical bodies. Verse 17, then we which are alive remain shall be what? Called up. Look at me, please. Some people do not believe in the rapture because the word rapture is nowhere found in the Bible. The word rapture is a theological term given to a biblical truth. For example, the word trinity. How many believe in the trinity? It's very taught in the Bible, though the word trinity is nowhere found in the Bible. It's a theological term given to a biblical truth. We get the word rapture from the word, the main should be caught up. You know what that means? Snatched away. So if the rapture happened right now, guess what? You'd be gone. It would snatch us away. Now, the dead in Christ, the bodies of our loved ones that are in heaven, their bodies will be resurrected first, and we will be caught up together with them. Read on. It says in verse eight, 16 again, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, trumpet of God, the dead in Christ shall rise first. Verse 17, Then we which are alive remain shall be caught up together with who? With them, our loved ones in heaven that are brought back with Christ, in the clouds to meet the Lord where? That's the difference. Look at me, please. The difference between the rapture and revelation. The rapture, the Lord comes in the air. He doesn't come to this earth. We meet him in the air and we call up together with him. The revelation, he comes back to the earth and establishes kingdom for a thousand years. The rapture, the Lord comes for his saints. We meet him in the air and go back to heaven. The revelation, he comes back with his saints and establishes kingdom on the earth. So shall we ever be with the Lord. Now, verse 18, look at it. Wherefore, comfort one another with these, what? This wonderful truth mentioned over in Corinthians was given to bring comfort to you. For those of you that have loved ones in heaven, my friend, you will see them again if you're saved. Either by the undertaker or by the upper taker, you will see them again one day. 
So that's the wonderful truth. Go back to Corinthians now. The wonderful new truth, the rapture of the church. Some believers will never die. Every believer will be changed. A truth given to comfort us. Number two here, a glorious victory. A glorious victory. In fact, the word victory is mentioned three times in the next four verses. And if you don't mind, in your Bible, not the church Bible, don't mind, circle the word victory when we see it. Verse 54. First of all, there will be victory over death. There will be victory over death. Verse 54. So, when the corruptible shall put on incorruption, and the mortal shall put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in what? Victory. Now the question it says here, shall be brought to pass the saying that is written. Where is that written in the Bible? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Hold your finger right here. Go to Isaiah 25, please. Here's the saying that is written that Paul quoted from in 1 Corinthians 15, 54. Isaiah 25, page 1010, 1010. Here's the verse he quoted from to say, Death is swallowed up in victory. Isaiah 25, verse 8, please. In verse 8, it says, He will swallow up death in victory. Verse 8. And the Lord will wipe away tears from all their faces. The rebuke of the people shall be taken, he shall take away from all the earth. The Lord hath spoken. So this is the verse which Paul spoke from when he said death shall be swallowed up in victory. The Bible says the last enemy is death. And one day we'll have victory over death through the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only victory over death, but also victory over the grave. Go back to now to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55, please. We'll see the word victory again. We saw there in verse 54, death is swallowed up in victory the first time it's mentioned. There will be victory over death, verse 55. He says, oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy what? You know what Paul's doing? Paul's taunting death. And taunting the grave. To the Christian, death has no victory over us. The grave has no victory over us. And for someone said this, here the apostle Paul taunts death as it were a bee without a stinger. The sting was sin that was revealed by the law, but it says here the law that sting was death was conquered by Christ by his death on the cross. In Hosea 13, 14, it said, I will ransom thee from the power of the grave. I will redeem thee from death. O death, I will be thy plagues. O grave, I will be thy destruction. My friend, we will have victory over death and grave. The picture is, death and the grave wants to devour and consume you. And to the people think, well, death, the grave, is the end. My friend, it is not. It's just the beginning. And one day, your body will be resurrected from the uh, grave. Death will not hold you any longer, and you'll be taken to heaven at the rapture of the church. And so basically, this victory over the death and the grave, let us see, is the victory through Jesus Christ. Is victory through Jesus Christ. 
it says there in verse 57, and we'll see the third time the word victory is mentioned. But thanks be to God, which giveth us what? Victory through who? Our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ's death on the cross and resurrection gives us victory over death and the grave. My friend, because he lives, we shall live too. That's what he's saying here. Because he lives, we shall live too. Look in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, please. Back up to verse 20. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that what? What does he mean, firstfruits? Now, the Jewish people in the Old Testament who were farmers knew what the firstfruits. The firstfruits were the first pickings of a crop that was planted. And the Bible says the firstfruits went to God. And they were a way of saying thank you for the other crops that are coming in. My friend, Jesus Christ was the first fruits of all them that slept. He's the first one resurrected from the dead. And because he rose from the dead, we shall be raised too. And he goes on to say in verse 21, For since by man came death. Who's the man who brought death? Adam. And by man came also the resurrection dead. Who's that man? The man Christ Jesus. Verse 22. For in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made what? How many can say amen? My friend, what a great truth that is. So we talked about a new wonderful truth. A glorious victory. And lastly, both of these are a tremendous motivation. Both of these are tremendous motivation. Now we get to our key verse in verse 58. Let me quote it for you again. Then we'll look at it. We'll take the verse apart. He says, therefore. Now look over here, please. Most of you heard this a thousand times. But if you've been here the first time, anytime a student of the Bible sees the word therefore, he needs to ask himself, what is that word therefore, therefore? It always refers to what is previously mentioned. He says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abound in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain the Lord. What he said when he says, therefore, because of this wonderful truth, because of the glorious victory we have, the believers are monster to do three things. Because of the wonderful truth of the resurrection and the, uh, of us going to heaven. And the glorious truth of that victory over sin and over death and the grave. He gives you three admonitions. Number one, stand firm. He says, be steadfast. That means stand firm. Steadfast means seated, sedentary, fixed means being firmly established in your faith. Remember, these believers were doubting the resurrection. They're questioning the, Christ, the resurrection, even Christ's resurrection. He says, beloved, stand firm in what you believe. Don't compromise that. Don't let your belief be, in these truths be shaken or staggered. The next thing we'll want to do, not only stand firm, but be fixed and stable. He says, be, be steadfast, unmovable. The word movable means be firm, fixed, stable, and moved. Paul is saying, let nothing shake your faith, namely in Christ's resurrection, and your expectation of this wonderful truth of you being raised incorruptible and mortal. Don't let anything that. The word unmovable is very similar to the word steadfast. There's a little stronger uh, word of that great truth. So Christian, because one day 
either by the undertaker or the overtaker, you're going to go to heaven. And because you will have victory over sin, over the grave, and over death. He says, therefore, be stand firm. He says, be fixed and stable. In fact, he tells us there in Colossians 1.23, continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel. And the third admonition is faithfully serve the Lord. Faithfully serve the Lord. And notice the latter part of the verse. He says, be steadfast and movable. Then he says, always abounding in the work of the Lord. This means always being engaged in doing the will and the work of God and promoting his glory, advancing his kingdom and sharing the gospel. That's what it means. But notice the two adjectives that describe this serving. He didn't say just, you know, be steadfast and movable, serving the Lord. He says, be steadfast and movable, abounding in the work of the Lord. The word abounding has the idea of superabounding. That's something you do exceedingly and excelling in your life. But he not only says that, he says, always abounding in the work of the Lord. My friend, if you're not serving the Lord, get busy. And if you are serving the Lord, continue to do it. As Christ returns, we ought to abound in serving him and always do that. Always abound. It means not only to be busy serving the Lord, but do so diligently, exceedingly, and excelling in doing this. And why? Pastor, why should I serve the Lord? I'm glad you asked. He goes on to say, the believer's certainty for as much as you know, for much as you know, the word know means certainty. What can I be certain about? He goes on to say, the believer's labor for the Lord is never wasted. It's never in vain. For as much as you know that your labor is not vain in the Lord. Have you ever been discouraged in serving the Lord? Have you ever wondered if what you're doing is making any results? Many Christians don't see any results in witnessing. They don't see any results in doing this. And they just give up. I just give up. What Paul was saying here, don't give up. Please listen. Work done for the Lord counts for eternity. It earns eternal rewards. Here is a quote from the Life Application Bible. Listen carefully. Paul's saying this. Paul says, because of the resurrection, nothing we do is in vain or useless. Sometimes we become apathetic about serving the Lord because we don't see any results. Knowing that Christ has won the ultimate victory should affect the way we live now. Don't let discouragement over an apparent lack of results keep you from doing the work of the Lord. Galatians 6, 9, Paul said, Let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season you shall reap if you what? Faint not. Let me give you an example. Many of you, probably most of you don't know this person. She's in heaven. Her name was Sis Kern. Sis Kern was a faithful member. This is back in the 80s when I first became a pastor. Faithfully, she was here every time the doors opened. Faithfully served the Lord. Every prayer meeting she'd come and she prayed. You know who she prayed for? She prayed for her son, Jimmy. Jimmy was not saved. Jimmy ran a bar over here in Land Lakes and serving alcohol. He was not saved. And every Wednesday night, she lifted up the name and said, Pastor, pray for Jimmy. She said, Jimmy is sin sick. <laughs> pray for Jimmy. Over years. 
years praying for Jimmy. I never saw any results. But she never gave up. But all of a sudden, Sis Kern died and never saw Jimmy saved. At the funeral service in our church, Jimmy came to the service. He sat right there. And I gave the gospel. And I showed them Sis Kern's in heaven. You want to see Sis Kern? You need to trust Christ. Gave an invitation. Guess who trusted Christ? Jimmy did. She prayed for years. She never gave up. Have you been praying for somebody to get saved? And you see no results? I just give up. My friend, don't give up. That's what he's saying. Your work of the Lord is not in vain. Keep on keeping on. You may not experience here. Faith. Talks about you shall reap in due season. That due season may not come until you get to heaven. Sometimes we see results here. Sometimes we don't see results in heaven. But keep on keeping on. You have loved ones that are not saved. Keep on witnessing. Keep on sharing Christ. Don't give up. Because your work is not in vain in the Lord. So the believer's motivation to serve the Lord is knowing the time spent serving him is never wasted. Service rendered for Christ is always profitable and will one day be recognized and rewarded by the Lord. So let's wrap it up. It's time to finish. We've looked at three things to motivate us to serve the Lord. First of all, we saw the wonderful truth. The wonderful truth some believers will never die. Every believer one day will be changed. We saw the glorious victory. Our victory over death, our victory over the grave, and the victory we have through Jesus Christ. Then we saw a tremendous motivation. These truths motivate us to stand firm, to be fixed and stable, and faithfully serve the Lord. Why? For as much as you know, your labor is not in vain. Listen carefully. Let me talk about something else we can know. Did you know, did the Bible says you can know that you have eternal life? In fact, the word there, know, in 1 Corinthians 50, 58, is the same word. Go with me now to 1 John chapter 5, and we'll close with this. 1 John chapter 5, page 17, 18. He said, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain, the Lord. We can know that when we serve the Lord, our labor is never wasted. That word know is the same word here in 1 John chapter 5, page 17, 18. When you find it, like we please. We'll close with this passage. There's a not a lot in this world we can be certain about. You're not certain about how long you're going to live. You're not certain about how much money you have. You're not certain in the storm we had if your house is going to be around. <laughs> I'm grateful the storm did not hit us. I thank the Lord for that. But we're not certain. But there's two things you can be certain about. Number one, when you serve the Lord, your labor is never wasted. It's never in vain in the Lord. And number two, another thing you can be certain about. You can be certain about that when you die, you'll go to heaven. Look what it says here. The same word, we'll see. 1 John 5, verse 11. John said, For this is the record that God hath given to us what? What kind of life? Eternal life. And this life is in the church. Does it say that? No, no. This life is in the baptistry. No. This life is in the church membership. No. This life is where? In his son. My friend, eternal life is not in some church. Some churches say, this church gives you eternal life. 
this behavior gets you to heaven. The waters of the baptistry saves you. The tithe you give saves you. The life is not in it. The life is in a person, the person of Jesus Christ. Read verse 12. He that hath a son hath what? Life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. Illustration I want to share with you. It's not the one you think I want to share with you. Look over here, please. I hope I have something in here. Oh, yeah, I do. I have a $20 bill. Now, let's suppose, you know, suppose Chuck's broke here. He didn't have a dime to him. So I put the $20 bill in the wallet, and I give Chuck the wallet. How much money does he have? $20. Now, that's not deep. <laughs> so by the virtue of fact, $20 in the wallet, I give Chuck the wallet. How much money does he have? $20. Because $20 is in the wallet. He that hath the wallet hath $20. He that hath not the wallet has not $20. Make sense to you? What he says here, this is the record that God's given eternal life, and eternal life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God has not life. I didn't understand that for years. I trusted Christ, received Christ when I was eight years old but never knew that I had eternal life until I was like 23. But the moment I received Christ, guess what I had? Eternal life. If you trusted Christ as Savior, my friend, you're not waiting to get it. You got it. He that hath the Son hath what? Because he is life. When you receive Christ, you receive eternal life. He said, Pastor, can I know that? Verse 13. <laughs> These things... Have I what? Written unto you that what? So who is this written to? Believers. Those who believe on the name of the Son of God. Why? Read on. That you may what? Circle it. Highlight it. That you may know that you have eternal life. Pastor, I haven't trusted Christ. It's written that you might believe on the name of the Son of God. So you can have it. Right up here, please. I went through life years, though I was saved, hoping I'd go to heaven. Because I didn't know when I trusted Christ, God gave me eternal life. So let me say this to begin with. If, you're, if you've trusted Christ, my friend, you're not waiting to get eternal life. You have it. The moment you receive Christ, you receive eternal life. Because he that hath the Son has life. And you say, Pastor, can I know that? When I was 23, I was working for the telephone company. Maybe you've heard this before. My fellow employee's name was Jack Green. Jack Green asked me, he said, Dave, if you die today, would you go to heaven? I said, I hope so. He said, do you know that for sure? I said, no. He said, if you like, would you like to know? I said, please. And he showed me this verse. I believe the Bible. I was very ignorant of the Bible. And he showed me 1 John 5, 13. He says, Dave, the Bible said, these things are written unto you that believe. Do you believe on Christ? I said, yes, I did that as an eight-year-old boy. It says, it's written that you might what? What's it say here? Does it say hope? Does it say guess? That you may wonder, that's what I did, that you may know that you have eternal life. And all of a sudden, great light bulb went off. I know it. Not because of anything I've done, but because of what he's done for me. And he said, the God who cannot lie, said, David, because you have my son, you have eternal life. And David, you can know it. In fact, do not turn there back in verse 12. 
They said, this is the record. That if we don't believe the record God's given to us, we're calling God a liar. So if you're saved and you say, I don't, you can't know you're going to heaven, you're calling God a liar. Because God says you can know you're heaven. How many can say amen to that? So basically, let's close with this. We're talking about a motivation to live steadfastly. The motivation to live steadfastly is one day we're all going to change. Either through the resurrection or through the rapture, we're all going to go up and be changed and go to heaven. At that time, we'll have victory over the death, over the grave through Jesus Christ. And that victory is a motivation for you to be stand firm, to be settled, and faithfully serve the Lord. Why? Because you know that your labor is not what? In vain. One day, you'll be rewarded. And one day you'll hear the Lord say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I don't know about you. I'm looking forward to that. I want to say, I hope he doesn't look at you and say, I'm glad you're here. <laughs> but more than that, well done, thou good and what? What do you say? Faithful servant. And so I encourage you if you're saved, maybe you quit witnessing to someone because you just gave up. Maybe you quit trying to do something for the Lord because you saw no results. Don't quit. Keep on keeping on. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding. You may not see results in this life. My friend, one day, I, I bet you, I don't bet you, I know, that Sis Kern, when she went to heaven, all of a sudden, Jimmy showed up. Oh, I bet she was shouting. Because a son she prayed for for years was finally there and trusted Christ at her homegoing service. So if you're saved, my friends, serve the Lord. Don't just serve him, abound in serving him, and always do so. And because you know you labor not me. But if you're not saved, let's close with this. Let me close with this. And I asked this at the funeral service yesterday. I asked the people, if you had died today or 10 years from today, would you go to heaven? Let me ask by the raise of hand this morning. How many of you know, by the raise of hand, how many know for certain that if you die today, you'd go to hell? Raise your hand. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I want to see if you pay attention how many know for certain you're going to heaven raise your head okay why because God said so amen but if you're here today you're not certain if you trusted Christ you can know it but if you haven't trusted Christ my friend believe on Christ today don't go through life hoping or guessing or wondering that when the time die, you do die, you can know that you have eternal life. You can know it today. Let's bow together, please. As our heads are bowed and eyes are closed, we conclude our service. Thank you for listening. This was our first message on the idea of living steadfastly. How we as believers always, should be always abounding in the work of the Lord. But if by chance you're here today and you're not certain that you are a Christian, which means you're not certain you've, you know heaven's your home. Maybe like me, if you would answer the question, if you die today, you'd go to heaven. You'd say, I hope so, Pastor. I think, well, maybe, but I don't know. My friend, you can know. But it first comes, that certainly comes, first of all, by you personally receiving Christ to be your Savior. Trusting him to save you and give you eternal life. And my friend, you can do it right now. Chances are most of you have done this. I saw that by raise of a hand. 
But if you could not raise your hand, why not trust Christ now as your Savior? You can do it right where you're sitting. Whether watching by live stream or in this service, you can place your dependence upon Christ to save you. And the Bible says the moment you do that, he will save you. He will forgive you. He'll give you eternal life. Pastor, how do I do that? Why not talk to God? And right now, maybe just say something like this in your own thoughts. Only God knows your thoughts. You cannot go wrong. Maybe say something like this. Just say, dear God of heaven, I acknowledge, I admit that I'm a sinner. And because I've sinned, I've earned, I deserve your punishment. But God, I believe that Jesus, your son, was punished in my place. That Jesus Christ, as my substitute, suffered, bled, and died for me. He was buried, and I believe he rose again. And God, realizing I cannot do anything to save myself. God, I'm trusting Christ. I'm believing on Christ to be my Savior. I'm trusting him to forgive me and to give me eternal life as he promised. I'm trusting Christ as Savior right here today. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed. My friend, did that make sense to you? Did you trust Christ to be your Savior? If you did, I'd like to know that. I'd like to pray for you. I'm not going to put you on the spot. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to point you out. I'm going to do something with heads bowed and eyes are closed. No one be put on the spot. But the first time here today, you understood that what Christ did for you. And you trusted him to be your Savior. And allow me the privilege to pray for you. With heads bowed and eyes closed, no one will be put on the spot. Would you right where you had, just simply raise your hand so I can pray for you? And we're all. Pastor, my hand, I trusted Christ. Would you pray for me this morning? And we're all this morning. Love in heaven, I hope that means each one here has already trusted Christ as Savior. If they have, I hope they would realize any labor, anything we do for you is never in vain. Chances are there's several here that served you they give up because they saw no results they have loved ones they've witnessed to but they gave up because they know they would not trust christ they've been praying for someone but they gave up because they saw no results father help us realize our labors never in vain as paul said let us not be weary in well-doing for we shall reap in due season if we faint not i pray father we might renew ourselves to the ministry you called us to a prayer witnessing whatever it is we will not give up we'll continue to serve you as the word says because our labor is never in vain thank you for the great truths of god's word today in christ's name we pray amen